Welcome to Roots and Ruminants, your podcast for creative and innovative use of farm, pasture, and rangeland. We're going back to the basics of raising and grazing livestock, growing your own forage, and practical land use. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Roots and Ruminants. Uh, here with Justin Frichty and uh, Jared Nock, and then we get the opportunity to visit with David Brini from Iowa State University. So it's our first cyclone that we've had on the podcast. So should be good. We've been pretty heavily relying on uh, jackrabbits for this podcast. So we're going to go south and talk to somebody from Iowa State. So it'll be good. Um, David works there, and, and we've we've kind of had some interactions with with Iowa State doing some different forage and cover crop things and trying different things and uh, been down to their field day, and David has a farm on his own. So it's going to be a great podcast to hear his side and his take of, of working in cattle and to forage and, and cover crop opportunities. So um, like what we do on all podcasts, kind of let the guests take it away. So David, why don't you go ahead and give your introduction of, of who you are and uh, where you're at and what you do there at Iowa State. Well, perfect. Well, Thank you guys for uh, inviting me to come on. Um, my name is David Brini. Um, I'm our Iowa State University Animal Science Beef Farms Manager. Um, the main uh, unit that we're utilizing a lot of the things that we're going to visit about here today uh, would be our beef teaching farm, which is located just right south of Ames. Um, actually, where our cabin pen is, is in technically city limits. So, uh, we got a housing development right up next to us, so we're pretty cozy with um, Ames here. Um, right in the middle of central Iowa, um, we're a short half section of grass, um, kind of right in the middle of corn country. So we're a bit of an anomaly um, in itself at the university here. You bet. Raising, raising grass and cattle on prime farm ground in the central Iowa. Or prime yep, real actually, estate, actually. The, uh, yeah, so the farm that uh, is now the present-day beef teaching farm uh, actually used to be our agronomy farm prior okay. to 1965. So. Okay. so everything that you're farming then, you know, has a or everything you're grazing now has a crop history. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't we don't uh, we don't do any crop insurance on our uh, forage crops here. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we're doing this all on prime farm ground. Yeah. Um, and we've been doing it that way since 1965 when the farm moved yeah. uh, to its present-day location from off campus. And, David, how long have you been involved with the teaching farm there? Yeah, so I actually came here um, back in uh, 2010 uh, as an undergrad. Um, and actually started working out here as our mechanic. Um, I worked out here all through my undergraduate career, bred cows, um, did a lot of that, um, kind of got to the point in my undergraduate career when I was ready to graduate, um, kind of started to enjoy a uh, little bit more of the management side in that, um, and was offered the position, uh, because my predecessor, um, had moved into a different role shortly before retirement. And, uh, in 2013, I took over management full time, uh, out here at the beef teaching farm. And I've been here ever since. Uh, my role changed a little bit last year with also taking on oversight of our research feed yard north of town as well. So the the beef teaching farm that I manage um, would be to other universities would be very similar to like a university's cow calf unit. Um, we do retain ownership in our calves most of the time. 
Uh, we've changed how we feed those calves a little bit to try and be more efficient. Um, but this is where all the cattle that are used for the undergraduate coursework at Iowa State uh, come from. So we are very heavily utilized by undergrads um, and all of our labor at the farm, with the exception of my border colleague, would be undergraduate student labor. Perfect. Can you talk through some of that, that cow herd management um, and, and maybe how it relates to some of the things that you're trying to, mo- to promote through the teaching part of the stuff as well? Yeah, so <clears throat> kind of our cow herd management, um, obviously our farm is utilized a lot in our sophomore and senior level beef classes here. Um, we manage this operation like a commercial cow-calf operation would. However, we also have a uh, seed stock component to this operation. Now, with our seed stock component, um, our rule is kind of that we're not going to baby those cows and make excuses for them um, because most producers that are going to buy those genetics are not going to as well. Um, So we hold these cows to the same standards as most commercial cow-calf producers would. I guess what might be a little bit more beneficial is to tell you a little bit about how we used to do things. Um, I would say we've been very progressive. Uh, My predecessor started rotational grazing um, in the early 80s here. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we tore everything out, put in one of the New Zealand-style wagon wheel designs, and saw huge returns on it. Um, Since then, we've tore a lot of that back out in about the early 2000s and tightened down paddocks even more, and then went to daily moves. And we've been daily moving cows rotationally grazed for, oh, geez, well over 25 years at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, Now we're to the point where um, when we used to do it that way, if we had moisture, back when nitrogen was really cheap, um, we could do about six-tenths of an acre per cow-calf pair turning out in late April, pulling off right about late October, whenever we would take those cows to corn stocks. That's fantastic. Six tenths of an acre. That's unheard of. Um, In a bad year for us, we'd be more in that like one acre range. Yeah. Um, And we'd start to utilize, you know, some of our hay fields and things like that. Um, But I guess you could say that we're never really satisfied. Um, as a lot of young producers do when I first started, um, probably actually grew that cow herd a little bit more aggressively than I should. And I started to notice quite a bit that we were running into some issues, um, out in those pastures, a lot of bluegrass encroachment, um, and some of those heavy traffic areas and just wasn't really seeing the tonnage that we needed to. And, uh, I guess that's kind of where this all started for me. Uh, was how do we make this farm more productive? Um, and really, my quest to make it more productive really led me to how do we operate this farm efficiently um, so that we can really serve those producers of the state of Iowa and be a model for them and try things that can really help the state's taxpaying producers um, succeed, if that makes sense. It does. It does. It- Going back to just as a point of clarification, because we do have uh, listeners from all over the place, um, 
about the 100th meridian to the east, we start talking about, you know, six-tenths of an acre. That's for the whole summer, right? And to the west of 100, we're kind of talking animal unit months. So you're not talking 0.6 animal unit months. You're talking about 0.6 acres for a five-and-a-half-month grazing season per pair. Yep. Yeah. Which uh, I'm sure that you've done the financial um, return on that, um, but that gets pretty competitive with high-yielding corn, doesn't it? Yeah, I haven't actually run those numbers recently. Um, my predecessor had run the numbers. Um, we can say really competitive with cash corn up into the high fives. Mm-hmm. Um, when corn broke $7 for the first time, we had to start counting in the seed stock value on the cattle. Sure. Um, and really, you know, when I started to look at this and the financials and um, – do my due diligence as an operator. What I really started to notice was there were a lot of, I'm not trying to brag. I would say we do a fairly good job rotational grazing, but there was a lot better that we could do. Um, we were doing a really good job in the summer, but we were probably lacking a little bit in delivering feed to those cows in the winter. I think our circumstances would be the same as most small operations. And I would, still classify us as small right around 100 130 to 160 cows split between a spring and fall calving operation to meet class needs that winter feed cost is really devastating um, for us and i i use the word devastating because if you actually dig into it on a financial statement um, for most operations it can be devastating if it's not very closely monitored, which uh, this audience, I would sure, also knows that as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, that's that's exactly right. I think it's a. Um, I don't know every person in our audience, and I hope to meet y'all someday. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's uh, people looking out for. How do we take advantage of that? You know, you have that corn stock grazing, right? Do you? And you probably kind of put a value of that on it. Very little, I'm guessing that you when you don't have any cows around you and there's cornfields all around, um, it's a, it's a bit easier to, to source that. Yeah. So, um, actually in our area, um, where I grew up was about 60 miles east of Ames and, uh, Northwest Tama County. Um, grew up on cow calf. We fed some cattle row crop operation and that ground, uh, there's a lot more no-till that's done there. Um, here in Story County with this heavier soil, if you can get your hands on some stalks to graze, it seems like you about get the gate open and there's a field ripper chasing you back out of the field. <laughs> um, they're wanting to rip those stalks and, you know, I, I completely get um, our farming brothers. Um, you know, they, they've got a balance sheet that they need to do too. So, um if we can get 20 days of corn stock grazing, I usually feel pretty, pretty thankful. Um, I actually put very little weight on corn stock grazing anymore. Uh, I kind of use it to fill the void now before we go into our strategic, uh, winter annual crops. Um, it's kind of what I use it for now. It's just a void filler. Gotcha. Um, not just a big free dry lot like a lot of guys do. Wow. That, that kind of makes me sad to be real honest with you. I, I feel empathetic for your situation. 
to be surrounded by a, a, a free, um, almost free abundant feed source and then watch it uh, you know get it getting plowed in this sounds crazy but we've done this before can you can you actually just graze it after they rip it or are they worried about compaction i mean i know most of it gets buried but not all of it you don't have you know that many cows a quarter would go a long way have you ever tried going in after field work and grazing it so it's actually fun that you bring that up um i've never tried to graze them on ripped ground uh this year um another iowa state entity called our 450 farm which is student run and managed farm uh, it's mostly a grain operation with a swine unit on it. Um, they VT'd their stocks this fall. Okay. And the way the fall went, and we had to get a little bit of fence put in so that we could get in there, um, I just kind of decided, the heck with it. We're going to still run these cows on here. It was a good fall. I wanted to buy some time. They were all right with it, and those cows actually – we're out on those VT stocks much longer than I thought they would be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah as long as the wind doesn't blow everything off after you do vertical tillage, <laughs> that's like your biggest risk yeah. more than anything. Chopping in small sizes. Can we go back to your rotational grazing system? And you said mm-hmm. at times you hit it too hard and then you saw more Kentucky bluegrass started to, to move in. Can you talk through, like, what is your grass makeup of those perennial pastures? And then, you know, if you are seeing Kentucky bluegrass, maybe some of your tactics and tips for others to use to alleviate that problem? Sure. So I can't tell you if I've ever really found a way to alleviate it. Uh, Once it gets started, I mean, I've tried a lot of stuff. I've probably tried more stuff that didn't work than stuff that did, if I'm going to be brutally honest with you. But, um our pastures are all cool season grasses that we utilize here on the teaching farm. Mm-hmm. Um, our primary species, and it, it really just pains me from the heart, Dustin, to admit <laughs> this. Um, we still have quite a bit of Kentucky bluegrass. Okay. Um, we do have fescue. Actually, we've got, uh, there is hot K31 fescue this far north in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Most people um, say it's south of 80, but I've stood three miles from the Minnesota border and seen it as well. Um, a lot of brome, a lot of orchard. Uh, we do have some festolium, but for the most part, we would be brome, fescue, bluegrass, and a little bit of orchard grass country. And your legumes, we do have some uh, red clover, bird's foot trefoil, and some grazing tolerant alfalfa still hanging around this farm. Okay, very cool. How often have you had to... When... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go. Oh, what I was going to say is to answer your question about um, kind of that management, when I started to notice that bluegrass coming in, um, I by no way mean to throw stones at my predecessor because he's like my adopted father. But um, what we learned through this, and I think is really important, and I tend to get a little frustrated when I help people lay out a rotational grazing system, is that when you're figuring a rotational grazing system, everybody takes into account that in 21 to 30 days, that grass is going to recover. And on a daily move, you can have enough paddocks, but if in 21 to 30 days, when you come back, you've been short on moisture, that grass is not going to be ready to graze again. So true. And if you've not taken this into account, now you start overgrazing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what we did in the beginning was we actually had those paddocks oversized 
we tried speeding cows up earlier on, you know, blowing them across the farm really fast, just taking the tops, trying to keep it immature. We all know that's usually kind of like trying to drink out of a fire hose. It doesn't work very well, and everything gets ahead of you then. So we would try and eat down. We didn't do the old take half, leave half. We'd try and take a quarter and leave three quarters so we had more leaf area. Sure, sure. What we've moved more towards now, and I don't even know if this is a real term, I call it flexible adaptive grazing. Um, we're going to rotate those cows. If we got to pull some paddocks out earlier, we will pull some paddocks out. Through the last two years of drought, what I actually learned was we were way better off slowing the cows down and giving them a smaller area, whereas we might have had a five-acre paddock, cutting it down into two-and-a-half-acre paddocks, even if it means a twice-a-day move, because when we start dividing up further, I'm actually not concerned about feeding the cows that day. I'm more concerned about feeding them in 30 days. Yeah. Because I can double my rest period by exactly. doing exactly. That. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Yeah, everybody, everybody's always concerned about grazing the grass that day. And uh, I guess my advice to any of your listeners would be: if you're thinking about rotational grazing, um, we should actually point at rotational <laughs> resting because the rest is what gets you to grazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In those tougher times require longer yep. rester periods rester and the other rester? thing that i guess i'll add in on that because i'm sure some of your listeners will have some questions and uh it's a bit controversial and i'll probably get some hate mail from it and that's all right but i've actually i will still clip some pastures clip seed heads down um from what I've noticed is it's really tough to do a good job clipping because most people are too late when they clip. Mm-hmm. And with $5 to $6 diesel fuel, I would much rather increase my stock density and tromp that down. It's a lot cheaper. I think we do a little bit better for some soil health, in my opinion, when we can get hoof traffic to incorporate that litter right away or that thatch. Um, so I've gone to not clipping as much. We will still clip some just to look good, but, um, I've really moved away from just, you know, sending a student out with a 16 foot bat wing and saying, clip all the seed heads off. I'll see you in three days. Have fun. Sure. Sure. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's a tactic to practice that just does not get used up, up North here, especially in South yeah. Dakota. It just doesn't happen. But, you know, you get into your area in South Missouri, it's really popular. And and I do believe that those that do it would tell you that their grasser is thicker, it's lusher, and the idea of it is not, it's not dumb. But <laughs> if you can use livestock to do the same thing, uh, get your hoof traffic mm-hmm. like you're saying, um, th- then you probably should do that versus mm-hmm. using a battling mower. Yeah, it, it was completely foreign to me when I did an internship in college in Southern Mississippi that to go bush hog the, pa- the paddocks, like go bush hog them. And I was like telling like people back home, I was like, yeah, it rains so much. They get so much grass that sometimes they just go out and mow it, <laughs> just mow it down. Yeah. They're like, what? But then they're like, hey, it, you know, but no, they just mow it. And I'm like, 
what's going on? You know? <laughs> so, so again, for, for our Western and Northern listeners, yeah, that's a, you know, bush hog and batwing, um, you know, kind of resetting the cycle in the grass if you can't take advantage of it. But to be honest with you, again, like you talked about flexibility, if you ran that hand to mouth enough on a good year to make sure you didn't need to go bush hog or clip grass like you did, you'd be set up really poorly in the drought year, right? Yep. So the, and I, I think that, you know, the bush hogging and clipping, I, in an ultra wet year, it works beautifully. Don't get me wrong. Okay. I think we're a skosh. I think we're a little bit too, we're not dry by any means, South Dakota guys. If we were standing there, you might slap me for saying that, but, (laughs) <laughs> if we were, you know, a little bit further south, even in southern Iowa, a little bit more tempered climate, I think it might, we might see a little bit better um, result from it. And it's also just really challenging. If we're going to clip, I'm a firm believer, pretty much as those cows leave that paddock, you better be in there clipping right behind them. Mm. Because you want that grass active and growing when you're going to clip it, not dead and brown. Yep. You're, you're kind of just adding a consistency to what you cattle already did. You're kind of finishing the job off when you come in right away. Yep. yep. And that's where, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not a mob grazer, but um, I will, and I'm saying this with air quotes, mob those cattle up a little bit tighter sometimes just to get that job done after that first spring flush. And then, you know, that regrowth, as long as we can rest those areas, now you can't do that and then think you're going to be back you know, in 21 days, like magic, mm-hmm. um, you still got to treat that ground right. I see a lot better results doing that myself. I agree. Yeah. So you're rotationally grazing all the way up until October-ish. Is that right? Or Usually. And you're perennial well, pastures? The last two years, we had to feed a little bit of hay to get through the tail end of summer. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer that I would much rather, I'm, I'm a little bit of a control freak like this, Justin, guys, I would much rather, um, me be the one to dictate when we're going to feed those cows and for how long, as soon as I start to see my grass regrowth slowing down, we're going to start thinking about what that contingency plan is. Because if you overgraze late in the summer when you're dry, and then you do get some rain in the fall. I know you're not going to have anything to graze that fall. No. To start feeding cows, it's a long haul till spring then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we can stop it early enough and leave some leaf area and catch some fall rain, you know, we might only be feeding cows for 30 to 40 days. At least there's a little light at the end of the tunnel in the fall. Mm-hmm. How are you using... Uh some of the summer annuals or cover crops then to get you to stocks or is that, is that your winter grazing system or can you talk through that after you're off of your perennial pastures? Yeah. So, and, um, I'll talk about how we incorporate them. So your listeners understand this and then we'll go back, uh, because it's actually kind of ties into how we winter feed cows now. Okay. Um, it's kind of a system that all has to work together here. So, we get into this, we call it the summer slump. We're actually, you know, in it right now. This grass growth is slowing down a bit. Um, we've been very fortunate in getting rain. But we don't we don't have warm season grasses here for the most part on this operation. And we don't have 
natives really anymore uh, at the teaching farm here in Ames. So what I've started to do is incorporate warm season annuals into some areas very strategically. Um, maybe it's a pasture that's up for a renovation. Maybe it's a hay field that we're going to renovate. Whereas before we used to cash rent that out for corn and soybeans, the, the cash rental money that we got never filled the, the forage void that we received by mm. losing the ground okay. to corn and soybean production. Okay. And I'm not saying that we didn't get paid good cash rent because we did. It's just, Anybody knows if you bought a semi-load of hay, if you cash rented 21 acres out at $300 an acre, that don't buy a lot of semi-loads of hay. Yeah, and if yeah. you have to buy hay in central Iowa, there's probably people to the west of you that has to do it. <laughs> and then hay's expensive. <laughs> now, we're fortunate here. We've always, per- to my knowledge, we have never bought a bale of hay on this farm from outside the university system. Okay. Um, we usually kind of, I'm a bit of a doomsday prepper when it comes to hay. I always have, you know, 300 more bales squirreled away in the back somewhere. Mm-hmm. But, um, so we use the warm season annuals, and this is kind of actually where Justin, you and I started to know each other a bit. Yeah. Um, we started using some sorghums and some millets um, just to kind of fill a void, actually, to get us to fall cover crop season so that we could burn those pastures down that we were going to renovate or hay fields, get some hay off of them and kind of that time period there until the first part of August when we're going to be getting those cover crops in. Hmm. And we started that cover crop deal actually as a way to avoid doing heavy tillage on the field. Um, As kind of a side note, we learned that we can run fall cows and peak lactation with calves on their side on nothing but a cover crop, a tillage radish and turnip blend with some oats in it. Uh, when you get rain in the fall, it works beautiful. You don't get rain in the fall. <clears throat> right. The soil benefit is still there, but uh, then girls are going to be searching. We did a research project one winter, and uh, I remember using a pickup and snow plow snow plowing swaths for those cows to get down to a cover crop. Hmm. And that was pretty awful. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned, uh, tell me about uh, growing millet down there. I'm guessing that you're, you don't have a, a large group of people at the Story County Millet Growers um, Banquet every year. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time I talked to somebody and told them that I was growing millet and, uh, I think they actually thought I was crazy. (laughs) Um, Most people, when you say millet, they say, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then they'll ask you, you know, about sorghum or sudex or sedan grass. And I'm like, no, 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 guys, this is a whole different ballgame here. Mm -hmm. And uh, they may be familiar with, you know, like a German style millet um, or a one, I call it like a one cut, one and done millet. We've used some of those as some hay crops, some emergency hay crops. Um, what I like a lot is the pearl millet. I really like pearl millet mm. because I can get some regrowth on it. So kind of these haying areas that we use as this warm season, uh, we'll get in there early in the spring and put oats in. We'll take an oat hay crop ultra early in the year like pre-boot stage. Okay. And it's actually really high quality feed. Yeah. Very high quality oat head. 
Um, I believe that, uh, Colin was down and looked at some of it this spring. And, uh, I don't think Colin thought I was, I think he thought I was full of crap until he saw the bales and he's kind of like, Oh my God. And, uh, it, uh, it feeds really good. It's actually what we'll put in at cabin time is that high quality oat hay. We can get a lot of it it's pretty cheap to produce. And then as soon as that oat hay's off, we're going to get that millet or sorghum stabbed right in the ground. Like, is those guys are hauling the bales off the field, that no-till drill is chasing them off the field. Are you, is that are the oats regrowing then or not? So we will get some oat regrowth, um, which from a from a farming standpoint tends to be a bit ugly. Um, I have cheated before, and we've actually had enough oat regrowth at times that we'll actually turn the cows in after we drill the millet before emergence, and we'll flash graze those cows over that oat. And then that stops it? Yep. Okay. For the most part, you'll still have a little bit out there, but nothing that's going to hurt. And you're getting in the hotter time of the year, and then oats really, they don't like that very Yeah, well. then they really shut down, it seems like. Hmm. And then the, the millet, um, if we can catch a hay crop on the millet and sorghum, we will. We actually put high stubble kits on our mowers, and we'll go in and mow that at like a eight to nine inch stubble height. So that way it'll tiller out or we'll graze it as an emergency, you know, drought crop. Cause up where you guys are from, you guys are used to millet and sorghum. The, these crops blow my mind how much they can do with a little bit of water. Mm-hmm. My joke to everybody is I'm like, if you spill your bottle of water when you're out there drilling, got enough water to start a millet crop. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty efficient plant. Yeah. Huh. It, it's yeah, so they, they work really well into that small grain residue. You know, oats millet's a great combination. We would typically and this is a this is a cow man's way of putting up hay. We've talked about it before in the podcast. We always cut a cut things a little bit late, right? We're always, you know, in South Dakota, the average cow calf guy, you know, full bloom. Get that alfalfa full bloom, then go out there and hit it. Well, it'll yield the most. Yeah, and it's technically true. The most lignin. The maximum amount of lignin out there. Now, I mean, and part of it's just busyness and time of the year and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. we do. We, we wait till things get a little bit too mature. Not, you know, need to fully realize that we can add a ton more quality, give up a little yield. But it also, like you mentioned, hey, a broader window for another crop or even a longer longer later maturing crop. Whereas there's some pearl millet as a, as a primary crop in the Dakotas up here. Yes. But for the most part, it's a little bit too late. Your advantage on pearl millet, it doesn't really exist versus Japanese, German, Siberian after you have your first crop off normally. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's typically mm-hmm. true. Yep. Yeah. And so the, the millet in that, um, if we're in a really good year and we're getting rain and it's growing well, um, we'll take that hay crop, and this is usually where people think that I've gone off the deep end. Um, I actually don't care about that hay crop. I mean, we're going to do our best to get it put up. We get it put up dry. Everybody will look at me and they're like, well, you're cutting that millet too early. Well, the reason I want to cut the millet early is I want to have enough growing left before the first frost. I want that millet to get hit with frost at about peak heat value. So I'm going to treat it like a stockpiled fescue. About the 
end of July, first part of August is when I want to, you know, we need to have that hay crop done if we're going to do it or we're just going to leave it, get the most tonnage that we can. And then we're actually going to leave it stand all through the winter. Um, this kind of leads me into our swath grazing and how we winter feed here. Um, which is probably one of the most outside the box things in central Iowa that we've done here. Um, it started by necessity. Actually, it's not that we were, it's not that I'm that form of thinking it's that I needed to do something different if we were going to be uh, cost competitive. And I was standing there thinking, and I thought there's no way that we can lay this feed down. I talked with a lot of people about swath grazing, you know, up in Canada and out West talked to one very prominent grazing person. And they said, that'll never work in your area. They said, you get too much rain in the fall and they are right. But if we don't package that feed in a windrow, it, you essentially have standing hay. And what we have found is that you will lose some feed quality in it. But by the time that feed quality slides back, it is usually still really good cow feed. It is light years better than corn stalks. Uh, we're usually at around 11 to 12% crude protein in a two-cut system. In a one-cut system, we'll be about oh, 8 to 9. We might have to supplement some protein if we don't take that hay crop in the middle. And about December or the very last day I can get in there before I'm worried that it's going to snow on me. I want the ground frozen. Mm -hmm. We're going to go out there and swath that crop down. And then that's how we feed our cows until March. Until March? They're grazing yep. the swaths all winter. The last three years, we have grazed cows up until March. Wow. On swaths. Okay. How are you? Go ahead, Jerry. No, I was yes. just going to go back to, to reinforce the point you talked about, about managing that millet for its ultimate purpose. So you said, you know, hey, that hay crop, eh, it's really about managing it for the future. So are you saying that there's situations where you selectively, let's say it's kind of dry, so you kind of got to knock it back, but there's not enough to hay, that you'll go in at that nine-inch mark and actually just selectively clip it just to get the final outcome, which is max feed value that first frost? Yep. So we'll actually also leave some. So we'll have usually about three or four of these areas now that we'll have set aside for swath grazing. And I might clip one of them back. So it's a little bit higher feed value come frost time. And I might not clip one at all. Just let it go just to get the sheer volume of tons. And what I've learned doing this is that when you bring them cows off stocks and you start to do this, you can walk those cows into higher quality feed and match that plane of nutrition all the way to the calving pen much more consistently. Huh. And you, you said another thing there was said, if we don't do that first cut, you know, and it's full growth, eight, 9% protein. If we get in there, we make that first cut or pay clip. Otherwise we're going to get 11 to 12. That's what I've found thus far. We did have one field that got, uh, and I don't have my tests in front of me, so I apologize if my numbers are a bit off here, but I think it was like four or five. It was pretty low, low protein, 
and we supplemented um, wet corn gluten out there uh, for those cows during that to meet their feed requirements. Sure. Yeah. No, it's a, that's definitely an interesting management strategy, but I, I think when you look at that and said, okay, what's our cost going to be to have probably potentially a few more tons or not more tons per acre, but more pounds per acre if we don't do that first cut, but lose three to 4% on protein, uh, what did we gain? Right. Yep. So you brought up the dollar thing, and I'm sure there's some listeners that are thinking, well, that's cute. Iowa State can do this because our ground's paid for, and I got a farm paying. And just so the listeners are aware, the numbers that I'm going to tell you are two year old numbers. Um, I do have numbers off last year, which I will share with you all. Um, we charge ourselves a $280 an acre cash rent on this ground that we run. When I'm giving you these numbers that has cash rent built into it, uh, there's nothing free when we're doing this. We're wintering those cows for the first year. We did it for about 63 cents a head day. Uh, last year we were at 73 cents a head day on those cows to feed them in the winter. And that is land rent. That is the labor on the students moving the fence. Mm. Um, that does not have my perimeter fence depreciation in it is the only number that you could probably pick on me about and maybe my waterline infrastructure. Sure. Wow. Well, who cares? That's, uh, under a dollar yeah. and, and they're out <laughs> grazing. That's, I mean, that's very, very, very low. Uh, we and we have we have started getting the hate mail and David uh, this response titled that doesn't work here. I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> and we're util- our utilization is around sixty eight to about seventy one percent. Garland Dalkey at the Iowa Beef Center and I have been measuring it for two years now, um, and we actually have a sizable project going on with it this winter. Um, also looking at water intakes out on swaths. Hmm. And what is that like, your water intake like? Well, I don't know. Okay. That's why we're going to measure it. I'm just curious, like, what are you observing as far as that goes? Well, I'm going to give a forewarning to everybody before (laughs) I say what I'm going to say. It must be an earth-shattering thing. The reason that we're measuring this is because when we get cold, when we had our winter field day for swath grazing in January here, it was, you know, about 10 to 15 below zero that day. A lot of wind. We are having problems since we started swath grazing with our frost-free waters. We run a Cobet water, so it's an energy-free water. We're having problems with them freezing because the cow's water intake, I believe, is much lower due to the sheer amount of snow that they're eating in the swath. Are the, and maybe, are you tracking the water intake on an individual basis or on a group basis? Um, this, will, this coming winter will be the first time that we have measured it, yeah. um, and we will have to measure it on a whole herd basis or okay. a whole treatment yeah. group basis uh, this winter. Uh, I don't have... I don't have any way to measure individual cow water intake right. out there currently. And the, the reason behind my question would be is, you know, based on the premise of whole herd water intake going down, is it uniform or could be specific to maybe some individuals that cows that are comfortable 
just using snow intake the entire winter. Yep. When you look at the hoof traffic in the snow, um, I can tell you that there's a lot less hoof traffic up to that water than there used to be. Sure. Yeah. When, when you drive by and see those cows, they're out grazing a lot more. Right. The warning in my preface to the earlier statement before I said that is we don't know yet. Yeah. I'm not saying that those cows can live on snow out there because we have not measured that. So please, nobody go out and do that. No, no. Um, but if you could sell a, but, you know, set of bred cows that are certified snow survivors, <laughs> you know, that's got a <laughs> that's got a, maybe that's a new EPD, right? Maybe that's a, something the Angus Association could bring in. Snow survival utility yeah. score. And I think the snow thing also deserves a little bit of conversation here. Um, some of our friends in the northern part of the state always say, well, that's great, David. That doesn't work where we're at. Um, two years ago, we were very fortunate with a lot of snow during the winter. And you heard me say that correctly. And I was actually excited um, because we got to kick cows out into a field of swaths that had a foot of total snow cover all over the field. Yeah, mm. cool. I'd had people tell me, you know, if you feed those cows a bale, they're going to get lazy on you. The only reason that they'll keep grazing swaths is because they know every day when you move that fence, there's swaths and they already found them. So I thought, let's try this. Okay. So we locked those cows up. I fed them bales, tried to turn them into welfare queens. We fed them bales for a week. And then I grabbed the dog and the student, and there was enough snow that we couldn't get our utility vehicles through. So we actually had to push a path with a 140-horse loader tractor across the farm to this field. We brought those cows into the field. We did not push anything into the field. We let those cows in, and within 10 minutes, those cows had found swaths and opened it up. Sure. That's awesome. Little snow plows. It looks like your neighbor took a little snow blower out there and just snow blowed lines across your field when they're done. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we move that fence uh, every other day here in the winter. Okay. Are you putting in posts when you're doing that? Or maybe we should stop. Just talk about your fencing strategy and how you're allocating swaths and all that. Sure. That's a great question because it is, uh, it's a challenge. So, um, on my own operation, um, I've done everything from using a spade bit and three-eighths rod posts to drill holes in the ground, but that does work. Um, here, what I've gone to is I use tumble wheels. Okay. Like the Gallagher tumble and, wheel? Is that yeah, it currently like I believe they're the only ones that have them. Yeah, okay. And um, they actually get a little frustrated with me because I actually don't use them for grazing the whole reason that i got them was for swath grazing mm. so um and they work beautifully uh one student we actually have a video out online i believe somewhere i'll have to email it to you justin yeah yeah showing a student like move 600 foot of fence and i believe it took her about a minute and 21 seconds to move 600 foot of fence very cool that's hustling was she running in between I think she. I think she was walking briskly because okay. it was pretty cold. That day. Yeah, there you go. You do work a little faster then. Maybe see if the track team can come out and <laughs> set a new record. Yeah. 
<laughs> Start an event. <laughs> but you know the Very nice efficient. part about like the winter grazing and the swath grazing, everybody, is that um, you're not – you still got to go out and check those cows, but you're not fighting tractors. You're not fighting feed wagons. You're not fighting loads, freezing in feed wagons as much. Mm-hmm. Um, if you got to be gone for the weekend, you just give them more feed. Mm-hmm. Oh, ask the neighbor to come by and take a look at them and make sure the water's open. I mean, um, it's nice. I'm to the point and I will make this statement. I don't foresee me ever wintering cows again without swath grazing. Ah, that is really cool. Mm. Really cool. You have time in the winter to plan how you're going to graze in the summer. And you don't realize how much time you spend in the winter chasing your tail just trying to get them cows fed. Yeah. If they can go out and do it themselves and spread their own manure, our manure spreading is our most expensive operation here. Mm-hmm. It's life-changing, guys. Let's talk about making the swath. Could be a whole podcast yep. itself entitled Making the Swath. But So have you, have you tried different methods? You, is it just a mower conditioner, 14-foot, um, 16-foot? Have you tried a swather? Have you tried, you know, you know, different timing of when you're putting it down. Uh, what do you like there? Yeah. So those are all really good questions. I can tell you what we've learned so far. Um, when Justin called me about this, I said, I don't know if I can tell you how to do it, but I can sure tell you all the things we've messed up during this this journey. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so currently what we do is we go out there, um, I'm running a 313 disc vine right now because it's what I've got for a hay mower. I'm going to put my windrow shields in as tight as I can get them. I want those windrows stacked up narrow and tight, unlike when we make hay here. Yep. I want that thing to shed any weather that it's going to come in contact with. We are essentially making a little package of feed out there in a line. Okay. In the drought years, what we will do is then take a hay rake out if it's light windows and we will rake together as much feed as we can to make that a larger package of feed for those cows. Okay. Yep. Yep. And, um, we've done, I call them direct graze swaths where we graze them directly behind the mower. Um, obviously when we feed test those direct graze swaths, we do have a lower ash content. Sure. But we've actually noticed that when we rake the field, we get a better utilization. We mm-hmm. saw that on one year, a little bit better utilization when we raked them. So the timing, I'm going to mow that stuff well after first frost. Um, this was kind of the big question that I had when I determined that we were going to do swath grazing. Um, I guess we got a minute. I'll back up because this is a little bit of a funny story. Um, I can tend to get a little angry once in a while. It's one of my faults in life. And, uh, the, the very day that I decided that we were going to change something, it was in November. We had cows out on some beans double and it was a wet fall. And I'm sitting in a $75,000 tractor. And that day I had either put out a round bale of hay, set hay out for a tub grinder or bedded with a cornstalk bale. I'd handled almost 20 some bales that day. Uh-huh. And that wasn't even a big hard day. That was just kind of an average day. Yeah. 
so I'm sitting in this tractor, you know, the windows are fogging up because you're hot and sweaty and everything's a mess. And you got that raft hanging off a tractor and there's mud everywhere. And I'm thinking, this is stupid. I've handled <laughs> X amount of dollars worth of feed today. Yeah. And at the end of the day, all we did was just, we kept them alive. Yeah. And I thought, we wonder why we don't make money is because we feed the profit out of the calf usually before it's even born most yeah. of the time. Yeah. You're not and um, I started looking at bale grazing and uh, decided that it wasn't a good fit for me. Um, I, I think it's a good tool. Um, it just wasn't a good fit for me. Uh-huh. And I looked at swath grazing, but we really couldn't figure out how to keep that swath, that feed quality where it needed to be. And this is the embarrassing part of the whole story is that um, when I came up with that idea, um, I was actually in the grocery store, which I do not visit very often. Um, my wife does most of the grocery shopping, but I was with her this time for the record. <laughs> and um, we're standing at the produce thing and she's pulling a bag of lettuce off the shelf. And I'm thinking that's kind of neat. You know, we can cut lettuce and put it in a freezer and it essentially holds seed quality for people. Okay. And I was like, you know, this would be really cool if there was a way that we could essentially put all of our feed in a freezer. And then I was like, well, David, you're not very smart because the whole state <laughs> of Iowa is a giant freezer for about five months out of the year. It's called winter. <laughs> You're just not late packaging your feed at the correct time because it's pretty tough for something to mold if all the moisture is frozen on the ground. Yeah. yeah. Well, back to your analogy of moving those 20 bales around in that one day. <clears throat> you know, we used to put have ox and put them on a cart, you know, and, and have them move our stuff around for us. And everybody's like, oh, you, you think of like the olden days and it's like, oh, horses and carts. Like not like rich people had horses. Poor people had oxen. Okay. That was, that was what they had. And I'm pretty sure my ancestors had oxen. So, you know, we used to have cattle move our stuff around for us, and now we just move stuff around for our cattle. Yep. Dang it. They Roles reversed. And yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I believe it's uh, Jim Garrish. Um, I'm a little bit of a nerd, uh, book nerd and podcast nerd when it comes to grazing and stuff. Every one of those cows is a ranch employee. And... Uh, I am a firm believer that those cows are to work for me every day, not me have my sole purpose in life is to work for them. I'm entrusted with the care of them and the land, um, but they got to pull their weight in this bargain too. Yep. No doubt about it. I have one pondering question rolling through my mind and it's, it's if you were to leave that pro millet and let them graze it standing, would your utilization be poor or would you cut some expenses of haying and raking versus swathing it? Or did you see that? Did you try that? So we have not tried that yet. That is actually a common question that we get when we're out in the state visiting about this. Um, and the reason why I don't do that is because a, I don't want to have a residue problem in the spring because yeah, that's usually on that ground, we will be in there, and I am the crazy guy in the neighborhood. If the ground's fit, we're no-till drilling oats, even if it's the last week of February. Okay. Because we have yep, done yep. it before. Yeah, as early as you can. Go. I want to make sure that we don't have to – we do no field prep behind these cows. We 
move the cows out, and the next time we're back in that field is with a no-till drill putting in that spring crop. It is beautiful to no-till drill in. Um, it is 70% utilization. A no-till drill will go right through where the swaths are. We are looking at incorporating a legume instead of just being so much of a grass, 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 grass all the time. Sure. That was going to be my next question is if you thought about, you know, trying to, you know, it, you know, make it even higher protein, right? Or, or add something different or add something to the rotation from a soil health standpoint. So. Yep. Yeah. So I'm starting to tinker around to some other crops. Um, spoiler alert. We actually just planted corn yesterday. Um, we're actually going to swath some corn uh, this year. Um, we're also going to graze some corn at flag leaf. And uh, with some calves, that's kind of on a side project. But okay. um, really looking at how do we get the most bang for our buck on these acres. For me, a very poor year would be only getting two crops. And that's really how we can keep that winter feed cost down is that we're spreading that $280 an acre on those areas where we're producing that feed and then the cows feed themselves on it for one of those crops mm -hmm. out over three different crops in a year. Hmm. I love it. Yeah. That's utilization. Uh, David, we're going to probably wrap things up here pretty soon. Any, any closing comments you got for the audience or things that you think we missed on? Uh, we, we've got a few more minutes here, but if, uh, Anything we didn't touch on yet? You know, I guess the only, I guess uh, for a closing comment, what I would have for those producers is um, don't be afraid to try something new. Um, if we keep doing everything the same way that we've always done it, I don't know how we can ever expect a different result. Um it's not that what we used to do was wrong. I'm sure not saying that, uh, but the economics of the cow calf industry have changed quite a bit. Um, and I think we need to sit down and be pretty honest with ourselves sometimes on our balance sheets. Um, is what we're doing the most economical way to do things? Um, we can never starve a profit out of a cow. I think everybody in this business knows that. Mm -hmm. But I think we can really look at some ways for these cows to be a little bit more efficient one and then two how can we have that cow feeding herself every day of the year that we can there will be some limitation in some climates i understand that and then on the next token how can we make sure that we are utilizing all of our growing degree days to the absolute best of our ability I want to be capturing every ounce of sunlight that I can every day of the year in the growing season, whether it's a cool season, growing season or a warm season, growing season so that I can produce more feed for those cows because sunlight and water is where we make the bulk of our feed from in this business. Absolutely. Yep. 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 So how do I steward those two things the best? And we are merely using cattle as a land management tool. And the side effect is, is that we all love cattle and that's the fun part of what we do. Um, if we manage the sunlight, the water and the soil, 
be good stewards of it. The side effect is that we get to keep that girl fed all year long, and uh, we get to enjoy why most of us do this. Yes, sir. There you go. It's about making carbohydrates, and the carbon comes from the air, and so do the hydrates. Um, everything else plays a supporting cast role in the whole process. Yep. Yeah. So that's kind of, I guess that's what I would challenge producers with is try something just even on a small scale. It doesn't need to be huge. Sure, don't dive in all at once because it's going to get overwhelming and you're going to make mistakes. Uh, the beautiful part about cows is that they're like Mother Nature's eraser. Um, I've had some really ugly looking fields and uh, raise those cows across it. You still get a lot of grazing days out of it. And then talk to um, an agronomist or somebody who's familiar with some of these warm season annuals or cool season annuals. And instead of looking at that field all year, not growing anything or being a cool season pasture in a summer slump, how can we take a percentage of those acres and be more profitable on those acres and get more production? Sure. Yeah. No. Great, great comments, David. And for those, uh, you know, as David mentioned, wanting to send in hate mail but don't want to drive all the way to the post office, (laughs) check us out on Twitter. (laughs) And add comments as we post this from the Millbourne Seeds uh, Twitter handle. Oh, man, uh, this has been a fun conversation, something that I've learned a ton off of. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll use it. So this, is, this has been great, David. I appreciate you taking the time to do this and sharing your thoughts and, and actually sharing what you've learned because this is really valuable things that I think a lot of producers are going to get something from. Yeah, and I'm more than, more than happy to visit with anybody. Um, this is my job. Um, also run cows on the side for myself personally. Um, that's a whole topic for another day, but, um, anybody's more than willing to reach out to me. Um, I sure can't tell you the correct way, but I can sure tell you what was messed up on. That's my job. Uh, that's why the university is here, um, is to serve the producers. And, uh, we feel very strongly about serving our producers here in the state of Iowa at Iowa state university. And you mentioned some field days, uh, swath grazing field day in January, uh, probably some other times throughout the year where you invite the public in. Yep, uh, we will do some winter grazing field days. Um, Garland Dalkey and I, uh, who's kind of my um, sidekick in this, actually Garland does all the heavy lifting and all the data stuff because he's much better at that than I am. Um, I am get the physical part done and that stuff, and Garland does all the utilization measurements and all of that. Uh, we are out and about sometimes doing speaking engagements once in a while now. Um, but we're always more than willing to talk to you all. You can contact the Iowa beef center here on campus. Um, you can look us up on Facebook. Um, if anybody has any questions, reach out. If we can't answer them, we will sure point you in the right direction to somebody that can. Sure. Sure. Well, appreciate that a ton, David. So, well, thanks again for your time, and we'll wrap it up. And, uh, yeah, appreciate all our listeners tuning in. Catch us again in another few weeks. All right. Thank you. You bet. We'll see you.